All right, if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let me invite you to open up to the book of Exodus, chapter 5. We uh, ended last week in chapter 4, and if uh, you were paying attention in that chapter, you noticed that towards the end, uh, I skipped uh, one of the most more puzzling pieces and stories, uh, really in all of the, of the Old Testament in particular. We're not going to go back and read it, but I'm going to summarize what happens. God sends Moses onto a mission to go meet with Pharaoh, and then there's this little interchange towards the end of chapter 4, where it says the Lord then goes to seek out Moses to kill him. And it's this really odd like moment in the midst of the scripture where God has sent Moses to be on mission and then he's like, you know what? I'm tired of Moses. I'm done with him. I'm gonna go take his life. And so Moses' wife uh, saves his life. She, she, does, uh, she circumcises her son, covers Moses' feet with blood, like a really uh, uplifting message right there uh, in the midst of that. And then God ends up sparing Moses' life. And then we're sort of left wondering, like, why would God do that? And, and, and what was the deal with Moses in that moment that God would sort of go after him? And, and I don't think the key to understanding that happens until chapter five, till we get to where we are, till we begin to understand a little bit behind the motivation and the heart of where Moses was, and that Moses wasn't yet fully committed to being on mission with God. And we begin to see that in a couple of moments where Moses almost does what God tells him to do, but he just doesn't quite get it right. And then it ends at the end of the chapter with Moses lamenting and almost chastising God for making the burden on his people far much worse. And chapter five ends with this uh, desperate state that Moses is deeply disappointed with God. I don't know if you have ever been deeply disappointed with God or perhaps maybe deeply disappointed with other people or deeply disappointed with circumstances, but our disappointments often spring out of the fact that we had hoped for something better, rooted in hope, and then what it was that we hoped for didn't happen, and so we end up being a deeply disappointed person. And in the midst of this disappointment, we have these visions and dreams for what our life should be when we're young and teenagers and we want to go off to college and we want to pursue this vocation and we hope that it works out this way once we graduate, that we land the job at the place that we want to work at, we marry the person that we hope to marry and we have X number of kids and this kind of car and this type of house and then all of a sudden we realize that oftentimes the things that we had hoped for don't actually happen. So then the question for God's people then is what do we do with that disappointment? And how do we manage it? And how do we lead it? And how do we understand it? You see, disappointment has a way of shattering our hopes and dreams. Disappointment has a way of eroding our confidence in, in ourselves. It has a way of eroding our confidence in other people, in our circumstances. It has a way of eroding even our confidence in God. Disappointment oftentimes will highlight how insecure of a person we are. Because it brings to surface and brings to bear all of those things that we seek to suppress and hide. It diminishes our hope. We can feel extremely lonely in the season of disappointment. We can have doubt and we can have fear. And it will make us question whether or not God is trustworthy or not. When we face death and look death in the eye of a, of a loved one, we, we are tempted to go down this road at times in places of despair and in disappointment. Is, is God really good? Is he reliable and is he, is he faithful? 
And what we ask based on this question of of five that I think it brings before us is this question of what actually provokes disappointment oftentimes in our life. And what I want to show you as we walk through chapter five, I want to show you how Moses responds and his lack of response and even the people of God, what they do. And what we're going to do for a moment is we're going to learn from them what not to do so that we can be better people as we pursue the kingdom of God and the advancement of his people. And so we're going to read a lot of scripture today. And so I want you to bear with me and we're going to start reading verse one and we'll stop in verse four. And then we'll talk about this for just a moment. It says afterwards in verse one, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Now, at a very surface level, when we see this interchange between Moses and Pharaoh, we think he did it. He accomplished the thing that God told him to do, yet yet in the midst of this, there's some subtle things that are happening in the text where, where we see demonstrated in Moses, which leads him towards the end of the chapter to be extremely disappointed with God, and I think points back to the fact at the end of chapter four, when the Lord was like, you know what, I'm not sure Moses is supposed to be my servant, not that he made a mistake, but that he knows deep within Moses' hearts the flaw that existed there, and what we see in Moses's life and in his heart at this moment is just simply a half-hearted obedience. Do you know one of the reasons why we can be a disappointed people is because we oftentimes are guilty of just serving God half-heartedly. And let me show you where Moses demonstrates this. If you flip back to chapter 3 in Exodus, and you just hold your place on about verse 18, and then hold your place here in, in, in verse one of, of chapter five, I wanna show you a couple of distinctions that are being made and some subtle deviations from the plan and the strategy. If we look in chapter three, verse 18, it says the Lord told Moses to go with Aaron and to bring the elders before the Pharaoh. Yet in chapter five, what we see is only Moses and Aaron are before the Pharaoh. The elders are noticeably absent. That's point one of deviating from God's plan. God said, send this entire group with Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron just show up without the elders before the court of the Pharaoh. Secondly, Moses in this moment, and we don't know why he does this, but Moses changes the Lord's name in this moment. In verse 318, he says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent you into the land. Yet in this moment, in 5.1, it says, the Lord, the God of Israel, has sent you into this land. A subtle distinction, but not yet explicitly saying what it is that God says. When God says to say these things, he intends for Moses to say them exactly how God has commanded them. Thirdly, in 3.18, the Lord says of taking only a three-day journey away to worship. 
Yet in verse one of chapter five, Moses fails to mention, we're just gonna be gone for three days to go worship. Now to Moses' credit, he mentions this later on in the chapter, but he fails to, to actually execute the plan in the very beginning and to follow what God has told him. And then fourthly and fifthly, these sort of go together. And I think these are the most important by way of application for us that demonstrate Moses is almost committed, but he's just not quite there. Perhaps he's there out of duty and obligation. But when the Lord instructs Moses, to use in the Hebrew what's called a cohortative, let us go, like come along with us and let us go. And instead, when he gets to chapter five, he issues this command that's saying, just send us away. It literally just reads like this, like I'm gonna command you to do something. But you notice in chapter three, where God is saying to Moses, you say to Pharaoh, and notice this, God uses these words, let us go, please. Let us go, please. Yet in chapter five, verse one, we go up to here and we see that Moses just says, let my people go. And there is this tone that carries with it based on the grammar of the Hebrew where he is demanding Pharaoh in this moment. Yet in chapter three, God said, you're not gonna demand him yet because I'm gonna harden his heart so that he will see the miraculous and wondrous things that I can do because I will be the one that delivers my people out of bondage. What the Lord had in chapter three was he had tone and he had tact and he, he understood the process of this confrontation and Moses goes in there not as a young 17-year-old, not as a young 33-year-old, but as a young 80-year-old going before the court of Pharaoh and he commands Pharaoh as if he is Lord over Pharaoh, yet in this moment he fails to recognize he is just a humble messenger. What he said was true but how he went about saying it was all wrong. And I think that's a reminder for us that it always matters what you say and how you say things. You must always contend for the truth that's on your side, but how you deliver that truth and how you speak of that truth and the way in which you live out that truth, it, it deeply matters to the person that's listening, but more importantly, it matters as well to God. Because we're going to see in a moment, God, uh, Moses sort of seek to take God to task in some ways and to question his goodness and his character. And then in chapter six, the Lord definitively responds and reminds Moses and elevates his tone in that moment. But it always matters what you say and how you say it. They are just opposite sides of the same coin. That goes to your gospel presentations and how you speak and live. That goes to your conflict at home, how you love your spouse and your children, how you live amongst your neighbors, how you deal with major issues and circumstances, how you talk about politics and presidential elections and governor elections and all of those things, how you say things deeply matters, not just what you say. Verse five picks up and he says, and Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen who were the Hebrews these were their own faith family. These were their brothers and sisters that were over them as the foreman. Verse seven says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they must make and made in the past, you shall also impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. For if for they are idle, 
Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Verse nine, let heavier work therefore be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. You have to come up with this straw and still meet your quota. Verse 14, and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had sent over them, were beaten, and they were asked, why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Pharaoh has commanded you are to come up with a straw. You can wave a wand. You can find it wherever you want by whatever means. Now this will be your burden because of what Moses and Aaron have asked. I'm going to make it tougher on you today. Verse 15 says the foreman of the people of Israel came and they cried to Pharaoh. And said, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are, are beaten, but the fault is it's in your own people. But he said in verse 17, you are idle. You are idle, and that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. And what Pharaoh does in that moment is he puts the people of God in a, an impossible situation to come up with straw that he knows that they're incapable of coming up with without his hand and without his help. And so what he begins to do is he begins to tighten the noose and take out the swords and take out the sticks and they become beaten and some die in this process and their conditions become far worse than it was prior to that. And what Pharaoh is doing in this moment is he is instilling a posture and a, a fear of, of himself. You notice the text reads, thus says Pharaoh. How many times prior to this and after throughout scripture will we hear words like, thus says the Lord. And Pharaoh wanted to make no mistake about it that in this moment that he was the Lord, that I don't recognize your God and having authority over me, that I am God. I'm the one who says what you can and can't do. I'm the one that will determine who you will worship and when you will worship. I am the one that sets your load and your task and how you live and when you eat. I am the Lord in Egypt. Thus says Pharaoh. And in the midst of that, what had happened is that the fear of the Pharaoh had gripped the people. And I think oftentimes when we experience great disappointment in life, it's often because we experience and live in a spirit of fear. See, in the scriptures, there's what's known as a healthy fear. And that healthy fear is this understanding that God is holy and he's transcendent, he's above us, and he's sovereign and he's in control. And we believe that in that holiness and in that sovereignty and in that transcendence that there is great comfort and it brings confidence to God's people. But yet there is another kind of fear that exists and it is a fear that only wishes to create insecurity in your life and in my life. So that when things don't go my way, I become insecure about my own ability or, or, or the circumstance or even the future. And it makes me not trust in a very faithful God. And what God was doing in this moment through Pharaoh is he was instilling fear in the hearts of the people in the wrong places. 
Because they begin to identify themselves not as servants of the Lord, but they begin to call themselves servants of Pharaoh. And for a moment, at least within the scripture, we see this sense of of forgetfulness about whose they were and who really was in control of their circumstance. And and you can't blame them in some regards. For 430 years, they had been living like this. It would be easy to forget. Many of us just experience maybe a a season of of 12 months or or two years or or maybe just even a few months of hardship and, and oh, how quickly do we forget that our God is still so faithful and we begin to fear the wrong things. He says, you are idle. This is why you say, let us go. Verse 19, and the foreman and the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. And when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks in your daily task, verse 20, listen carefully, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting on them. And as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses, you did this. You said you, you loved us and cared for us and were gonna deliver us, but, but yet now our lives are much more difficult and they're harder and, and some of us are, are dying and they're holding swords to our throats and, and they're seeking to kill us because we can't accomplish the burden and the bondage that he has before us. And so then Moses responds. He receives the criticism from the elders and from the people. And then in verse 22, it says, then Moses turned to the Lord and he said, oh Lord, Why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In an instant, God receives all the blame from Moses. The man that he plucked out of obscurity, the man that he saved from the Nile, the the man that he uh, appeared to in the form of a burning bush, though the bush was not consumed, the man whom whom before Moses' very eyes threw his staff on the ground and turned into a serpent, the man who before Moses' very eyes stuck his hand in his cloak and it came out full of leprosy and then he puts it back in and then he is cleansed. The very man that God allowed to turn the Nile into blood, this man has so quickly forgotten the promise that God had given him and even the miracles that he had just experience weeks and even months prior to this. God, what have you done? You have made it much more worse now. Why would you have sent me to have it come to this? He's in this place of great despair and certainly disappointed with what God was doing. And I think what what Moses fails to do in this moment that I think is indicative of oftentimes of, of us as God's people is he's forgetful about God's faithfulness. Just in a moment, he forgets it all. Just in a moment, acts as if none of the things prior to that ever happened. That God didn't save him or deliver him. He knew the history of his people, yet in this moment, he wasn't thinking about it. At this point, God was, had told Moses close to on three separate occasions about what he was going to do and how he was going to accomplish. And he tells Moses, you're going to go before the Pharaoh and you're gonna fail a couple of times. Why? Because he's hardening his heart and I'm hardening his heart. Like I, I have a plan for you to execute Moses and the beginning of that plan is that you would fail a couple of times. Like that's the plan. 
is that you would go and that you would deliberately, I would allow you, God, in that moment that I would allow you to fail. Why? Because on the flip side of that, I need to make sure that no one thinks that these are parlor magician tricks that I'm doing, that these aren't uh, some sort of uh, attempt to, to trick Pharaoh into letting his people go. I need Pharaoh and the people to understand that I am the Lord, their God, your God. And it's not Moses who is going to deliver the people from bondage, but rather it is me, God. And I need you to remember that for a moment, Moses. And I need to instill that deep in, in your heart to, to remind you of this truth, to not be forgetful. Friend, can I ask you this morning, if you're in a, a season of, of disappointment, if you're in a season of despair, can I ask you, can I plead with you to just for a moment to begin to recall the faithfulness of God in your life? And to think about from the very beginning when, when he allowed you to, to come into existence and he knew you when you were in your mother's womb and not one hair from your head falls without him knowing that he is deeply aware of, of your circumstances and the unknowns before you and the difficulties before you and the dreams that you have that are unmet so far. He knows every single one of them. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he's been faithful to you even in seasons of disappointment. And he's going to be faithful to you tomorrow, even in seasons of disappointment. Oh, how we forget, just like Moses. You know, the Lord has been faithful to not just us as individuals, but to us as a church, has he not? He's been good and kind. Not just financially, not just in attendance, not just in the small groups that are coming and the college students that are here and the young families and the old families and, and everyone in between. God has been faithful every single day. And all we have to do is just look back, even to our most recent, and we can back up a hundred years and see the storied history of this church and the faithfulness of God here at Travis. He's been faithful to us as a church. He'll continue to be. I was reminded this week of a quote by one of my favorite pastors and, and writers, a guy by the name of A.W. Tozier. And Tozier is famous for this quote that I stuck with me when I read it in college for the first time and haven't forgotten it. It just simply says this, God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and to relax our nerves. Did you know that this morning that God's not on your timetable and he's not on mine? And in this moment, he wasn't on Moses' timetable either. And you see, God has a plan to deliver his people, but the plan wasn't necessarily the way Moses would have preferred to go about doing it. And the same thing is true for your life and my life. God has a plan for your life. I don't know what that plan is, and, and you don't even know what that plan is, but I can guarantee you this, that the way in which God's going to execute that plan is not according to your plan. You may try to do that, and you may try to execute it and have the best strategy to have the best four-year plan and, and five-year plan, but I can promise you, when you look back five or six years from now, you're going to see the fact that your plan wasn't necessarily God's plan, or the way that God executed the plan was not according to yours. Why? 
Because God has his own timetable and God's not in a hurry. And sometimes God in his goodness, he will leave us in seasons of disappointment. I was thinking this past week about growing up and we would rotate vacations and we'd go to the mountains one summer and then we'd go to the beach one summer and we'd go to the mountains one summer and the beach one summer. And every time I go to the beach, I'm always struck with the consistency of the, of the waves and how they come in and out. And you can sit and listen to, to waves coming up on shore and rolling back out over and over and over again. And here's the thing about waves. Waves may change and get bigger from time to time, but the waves are always still rolling in. And sometimes seasons of disappointment, they feel that way. You go, when can the waves just stop? Would they stop? Sometimes they keep coming. And they keep coming and they keep coming. And here's what the Lord does with the waves of disappointment that keep coming in our lives. The waves that we keep seeing and focusing on and the, and the ways that our lives maybe didn't turn out the way we hoped or thought. After Moses boldly and foolishly rebukes the Lord, the Lord responds back. And here's what I want you to do that, that may be sort of different for you. I, uh, I want you to listen as I read these next nine verses. I don't want you initially read along. I just want you to listen, and I want you to listen for the word I in this moment. So Moses just says, Lord, why have you allowed this evil to happen to this people? Why in the world did you send me? This makes no sense, Moses. And then listen to the Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. But I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Cana and the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I God, have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will be the one that delivers you from slavery to them, and I will be the one that redeems you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you from out under the burdens of these Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. And just as the Lord was I am to Moses. He is I am to you and me today. He is faithful to his promises. He has never gone back on his word. He has never spoken contrary or done contrary to what he said he was going to do. He has always been faithful throughout the generations to do what he said he was going to do. And that same God who Moses gets to audibly hear from, we get to hear from according to his word. 
that even in the seasons of our disappointment and the ways that life didn't perhaps go our way, we are reminded of the truth that he still is I am. And we have the option in response to that is we can blame the, the thing that's before us that we're disappointed in and, and give blame to it. I, we chose the wrong thing, resolved to make a better choice. We can blame ourselves even in the moment and the season of, of disappointment. Like I'm the problem. I didn't work hard enough. I didn't strive hard enough. I, I didn't do whatever that was. And, and I'll just turn over a new leaf, new me, new year, new resolution. And we think somehow we can fix it because we blame ourselves. We can blame the circumstance for ourselves or we can blame the world even. We can get older and we can get real bitter. We can get angry and we can get upset. We can give up on being happy. We can become what's known as a, a church curmudgeon. Uh, the music's too loud. The lights are too low. The carpet's not red enough. It doesn't look how I want it to, to look. We can become that person if we're not aware. And we can allow the world to make us bitter people. And we can go and run to all the wrong things. Medicate on, on alcohol, on, on shopping, on, on drugs or some hobby that doesn't honor the Lord. We can blame the world for everything. Or perhaps there's another solution to this. We can realize that in this moment, as the wave of disappointment comes and we experience it, that that was meant for something else. It was meant to remind us that we were made for another world. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, one of my favorite books, says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So what if this morning, friend, what if the disappointments in our lives were meant to be reminders that we weren't made for this world? but rather we were made for the one that's coming. And that everything I do, this side of eternity, it impacts how I live in the next. Everything that I do, why? Because God didn't make me just for this world. He made me for the one to come. And so like Tozier, when I began to understand that and process that and to live that and to believe that, that it quiets and it stills my spirit and I just trust in his faithfulness because he's a faithful God Father we pray that you would help us in this moment to not be like Moses but to learn from him rather to not be consumed with fear and insecurity to be consumed with a half-hearted allegiance to you to, to forget so quickly Father would you help us not forget so quickly Father, would you help us not to blame ourselves, to blame others, to blame circumstances, to get bitter? But Father, would you help us just realize that one simple, profound truth that you made Moses not for this world, but you made him for the next. And you made me not just for this world, but for the one to come. And so I pray that you'd help all of us live in that truth this week. Whether heartache or happiness comes, whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're in the valley, whether we see the mountain right in front of us, Father, we pray that we would just make much of you and magnify your name and trust in you for you are a faithful God who is worthy of our trust. We pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said.